Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dom Tola, sitting alongside my co-host, Chris Quinn. And today we have a very special episode. I'm really excited. This is the first time we've done it in the history of the Sports Experience Podcast. Yeah, our first guest ever. Seriously, our first let me, guest. Uh, I'm historic. Me, yeah, I'm let in me the introduce him. Dave Margolis. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks. It's great to be here. Very the, excited uh, to be here today. Well, you're, all, you're privileged and unfortunate to be a New York Mets fan, so that's why we brought you <laughs> you're in. You're starting so. already, man. I got to. I got to. I got some ground to cover. And uh, Dave is the uh, co-host. I know we've brought him up before on our Drugs and Baseball podcast of the Is This On podcast with mm-hmm. Phil Gordon yep. here in Tucson. Uh, which uh, platform are you guys on? Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the internet, but uh, radio uh, station. I don't handle the technical end, Tom. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but but Phil says we're on all of them. We're on all we're of on, them. Yeah. All right, they're on all of we're them. On, is This On okay. with Phil Gordon you can and find, uh, you Dave can find it for sure. Excellent. Yeah, so, great. Uh, uh, let's get started, let's Dave. Get started. Um, you're a comedian like us. That's why uh, we immediately thought to bring you on. You actually gave me my first <laughs> non-open mic spot, which I feel like you give a lot of people, but uh, this was back pre-COVID days. It was this at the uh, Casa, uh, yes. Casa Morana? Casa de la Comedy. Casa, Casa de Comedy. And I remember, uh, and Dom, you did it a number of times, yeah. uh, the show out there in Morana and... Uh, some point Chris came up to me and he goes he goes Dave I love that you have me back he says you know I've I've done the last five shows yeah <laughs> I know you like to mix things up but I've done the last five shows and I go and I go I don't know how that happened yeah no it was it was a great <laughs> little stretch I did and people would ask they were like how is that show and I would say it is the biggest mixed bag I've had full like the room was full and everybody was laughing yeah. and then I had my everybody has their comedy experience where I did a set in the middle of the college NCAA basketball championship game where literally nobody, nobody was paying attention. I myself was waiting to get off stage to go and watch the game. So I had this mixed bag where I was like, it's a great show, as long as it's not during that NCAA championship game, because then you're just going to well, be screwed. Even without the championship game, there were a few nights we were performing to a table. Yeah, There were, so, but uh, usually it it's a great, great. show. And I was going to say, but a great crowd almost every yeah, single time. Yeah. That and was I, the only time in which no, literally nobody was paying attention to me, because, I mean, obviously. <laughs> well, I was thinking, and I thought, how come I kept bringing Chris, just aside from your talent, why did I keep bringing Chris back? Why didn't I remember? I just had him on, you know? And then, and then I thought, well, I would book the show, and I would book, like, if I want to get like, Monty or somebody that I knew was going to headline, and then I'd fill in, like, people I'd promised they could be on the show or wanted them on the show. Yeah. And then i go, oh, now i got to fill out the rest of the lineup. Chris Quinn's always good. Yep. He was he was my solid he, he was Dom, he was my Kevin McReynolds. That's perfect. I love that. <laughs> Kevin McReynolds. He was that solid guy you could always count on in the middle of the lineup. So uh and then, because uh, I remember you would schedule me, and then the next month you'd be like, hey, somebody just dropped out. Any chance you could come? So I would like, I literally kept hitting it with somebody dropping out, and then you scheduling me, somebody dropping out. And yeah. Yeah, it was a great as, little... As, as uh, every week a com- comedian got a strange, mysterious phone call that uh, ended up in them disappearing. And exactly. Then, uh, yeah, I'm available, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> great, yeah. Back in, this makes me uh, reminisce back in the comedy days, you know? It's, uh, <laughs> a long, long ago. Back when you could, uh, yeah, see people and hear them breathe. Yeah, right. It used to be. But uh, anyway, we got we had a very special episode right now, and the re- one of the biggest reasons, beside him being a great comic, we have Dave on today is because it's about one of the most exciting teams in baseball history, mm-hmm. 
the 1986 New York Mets. And as a Mets fan, Dave, you want to uh, take us through your fandom history? I would be happy to. First of all, I see you've got a copy of The Bad Guys 1, which both of you have read. I've never read it. Oh, do you want to borrow it after the show? I'll tell you why I don't. Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Because, guys, I have very few things in my life that I'm just devoted to. Uh I'm very easy. I'm an easygoing guy. Yeah. But having been a Mets fan basically since the beginning of the Mets, yeah. it's like I will go after anybody that takes issue with the Mets. <laughs> I mean, I am blocked from so many uh, New York Post writers' oh, no. Twitter. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes I know I'm irrational, but it's just like I, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to stand up for them. I have to, fight, I have to do this. So, so uh, I'm, I, I know you have, you know, criticisms and perhaps a few wisecracks regarding the Mets, but uh, and I. I I won't make a scene, but I'll, I, I, I'll definitely shoot some wisecracks <laughs> out. And they and they definitely were a group of guys that were the wild bunch. Yeah. When when you think about like when I watched this little documentary, they had nobody talked about their drinking or their partying. And you read this book, and it, it is ridiculous how much they were drinking and partying, and still just crushing teams. Right. Like yeah. that '86 team was so much better than. Well, that's what greenies are for, Chris. Yes, <laughs> and we'll get into that. Well, would they have won more games if they weren't partiers, or was that part of, I think that was part of I their mean, yeah, swagger. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, that was definitely part of their swagger, yeah. because they would literally, they were like, we're going to come into town, beat your team, drink all the beer, <laughs> have sex with all the women, and then we're going to leave. And it was like, okay. like, And they did that pretty much overnight. like Just a marauding horde that rolled into every National League city and said, you're on notice. Yes. <laughs> Well, what? I'll say, uh, you know, the, during that time in the late 80s when they won the World Series and they had very good teams and, and people would say to me, we were a Mets fan, they go, well, I don't, they go, I don't like the Mets. Uh, they win, they go, but they're, they're, too, they're too cocky, they're too arrogant. But Yeah, that's just how they were, well, though. My reaction to that was like, hey, I have been, we can say anything, right? We yeah, I go, oh, yeah. I go, I have, <laughs> <laughs> I have followed the Mets my whole life. They had some shitty, shitty years. Oh, yeah. I don't remember anybody saying... They're a horrible team, but what a bunch of great guys. Yeah. <laughs> I never got that, so I'll take the arrogance. That's that's fine with me. Yeah, also, the, the 70s were a pretty dark time after that 73 World Series appearance, yeah. Also, to touch on the Greenies thing, like I got to give it up to those ballplayers who weren't being cocky and completely on amphetamines. Like, How do you go through that? Like, You're popping all these Greenies. You're jacked to the nines. How are you not extremely cocky? And you know what I mean? Like, I got to give it up to those ballplayers, oh, not okay. the ones that are just like, I'm the shit. Because that's how I imagine I would be if I was jacked up on, my, on amphetamines. Well you, know? well, you know, in the 80s, uh, there was the cocaine trials, cocaine, too. Yeah. I, in fact, I was at a game at Dodger Stadium uh, that Keith Hernandez didn't start because he was in Pittsburgh, I guess, testifying. Yeah, oh, but it yeah. went extra innings, and he actually went in the game late in the game. Did he really? Yeah, oh, was, my uh, gosh. Yeah, because yeah, uh, we had talked about that on the Cocaine Podcast. Yeah. He was one of the first ones. He had gotten clean by the trial. I mean, he had right. already yeah. It was a quitted. big reason the Cardinals were ready to and willing to get rid of him. Oh, exactly. Of, yeah. Well, that, I feel like, is the first piece in this puzzle was when the Cardinals were like, hey, you guys want this all-star, and the Mets were like... Yes, we're the the worst team in the league at this point, and that's what Keith said. He consider like he talked to his agent about retiring, which I thought was kind of ridiculous. But he said, "Do I have enough money to retire now so I don't have to play for the Mets?" He went to New York and (laughs) he hated playing there in the NL East, the old NL East. And I forget which player took him around town to be like, "This is New York, man! Like you're gonna love it here." And he was like. 
after that, I was like, I'm here. Like, this is my it town. It was most likely Rusty Staub. They were yeah, very, very yes, good friends. Was, yeah, yeah, Rusty Staub yeah. and Frank Cashin took him out. Yeah. And Frank Cashin is kind of the, the guy I want to talk about first because he's all the right. architect of all of this. Mm-hmm. Because, yep. Dave, as you obviously remember, uh, the 70s were kind of a dark time for the Mets. You've uh, said that like five times. It's really hurting. <laughs> I, I am sorry. <laughs> I am not over to, the Seaver trade, Dom. I have to reiterate that they traded Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver, right. who I'm sure we'll bring back in this episode once we get to the uh, World Series, yeah. as he was a member of the Red Sox. Sure. But uh, Frank Cashin comes from Baltimore, mm-hmm. and he was a great um, uh, front office guy, identifier of talent um, for those Oriole Way teams of the 60s and 70s who probably could have won more than two World Series, but didn't end up pulling him out. Mm-hmm. But Cashin comes to New York and he has kind of a blank slate. And in 1980, with the first pick in the draft, this is kind of when it really starts kicking off and they start really accumulating all of the talent that you see on this team. They have the first pick and they take Daryl Strawberry. Mm-hmm. And Daryl Strawberry, for those of you who don't know, uh, what could have been is one of the things a lot of people talk about because they called him the <coughs> Black Ted Williams. Mm-hmm. Six six, long arms, lanky frame, power. I mean, beautiful uh, swing. Beautiful swing. Mm-hmm. Oh God! Ultimate five tool player, out of uh, Crenshaw High School in L.A. Right. They had a really good team. I think Chris Brown, who used to play for the Giants and Padres, was on that team. They were Eric, Eric Davis. Eric Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. They had a lot of budding talent there, and uh, they get Strawberry, and he starts rocketing through the minor leagues. But in addition to Strawberry, they're also going out and finding some later round type of gems some like scrappers like a wally backman who played second base platooning lenny dykstra who is a very very interesting person (laughs) to say the least and they start building this farm system up so they can also not only have talent on the field but also acquire some really talented veteran players on the free agent market in that uh, stretch of years if you want to put together a what might have been all-star team, they got Doc Gooden, Dwight Gooden. Exactly. Like, around 82, 83, something like that, yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. And uh, like much like Strawberry, he had a very short minor league career mm-hmm. because of how dominant he was. I think he maybe pitched a few games at AAA after going starting in single A. And one of the big reasons he was promoted so quickly was Davey Johnson was his minor league manager mm-hmm. and wanted to take him with him to the big club. Yeah, so. I thought it was interesting in 86, Johnson said he was just like, people didn't know, or maybe it was 85, when Gooden came up, he was just like, people didn't know. I had Gooden just like waiting in the wings, and I was like, here's my guy. He's like my number one guy, and he's just like ready to come up. What I thought was interesting about the strawberry draft was there were people in the Mets organization that wanted Billy Bean to go ahead of him. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that was They ended been, up drafting him later in the first round. For a and, while. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah but it was one of those things where, like, if you had saw if if Strawberry didn't go, he, they wouldn't he wouldn't have dropped to where Billy. You know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. If they not. picked Billy Bean, it would have been a Mets catastrophe. But they picked up Daryl Strawberry, who was one of the best hitters in that era. Are we going to relive the uh, drafting of Steve Chilcott when they could have got Reggie Jackson? Oh, yeah. You're going to... It's going to torture me today, guys? The first one? No, no, no. No, no, we weren't going to bring that one up. That was you. (laughs) And that's a true Mets fan right there. (laughs) But uh, Cashin just had a a really great eye for talent and finding guys, either younger guys like a Ron Darling from Texas when he traded for him as a minor leaguer, or um, Sid Fernandez, we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Yep. They got him basically off the scrap heap in L.A., yeah, you know, yeah. and really kind of congealing this roster that by 85, they're really cooking with gas. What they end up 
running into, though, are the St. Louis Cardinals in both 85 and then in 87, finishing second to them. Like, they mm-hmm. won 98 games in 85 and didn't even make the playoffs. And in 84, yeah. they started to be good, and the Cubs, actually. It was a Cubs yeah. year, but they, they had good battles, and they went very uh, down the wire on that one. Yeah, those... I have a little Frank Cashin story, if oh, I can throw please. it in here. Seriously. Uh uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, and the Mets made a trade, I would write a letter to the general manager. Nice. You know, what, what are you doing? Why are you, tra- why are you trading uh, Ron Hunt for Tommy Davidson? <laughs> why, why'd you, who's this Art Shamsky you picked up? And, uh, and I would get letters back from uh, Bing Devine was the GM at the oh, time. No and the, the first letter I got back was postmarked Scottsdale, Arizona. I never heard of Scottsdale. <laughs> and I thought, why isn't he in New York? That's where he's supposed to be. You know? So um, anyway... Uh, Skipping around a little bit, the Mets lost. Um, the Mets had traded Seaver in '77. Yes, they got him back in '83, mm-hmm. and then they left him uh, vulnerable to a draft after. Oh, the, the Rule Five draft. Yeah. yeah, this was a different. They were trying to figure out free agency still, and yeah. and you could freeze a certain amount of your players, and uh, they did not freeze Seaver. And uh, uh, the White Sox picked him up. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I dash off a letter to Frank Cashin. <laughs> yeah. Keeping in mind, I'm not a 10-year-old boy anymore, but still <laughs> kind of was. Still have and, the baseball and I, and I go, I go, I go uh, uh, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, what's going on? And I went through this whole thing, and I got a letter back from him. I think I probably posted it or sent it to you. Uh-huh. I got a very nice letter back from Frank Cashin, and uh-huh. he says, no, I'm sorry as you are. I didn't think anybody would draft a guy who's 39 years old near right. the end of his career. Uh, I, I'm very uh, uh, thankful that you said in your letter that you're a Mets fan, and you always will be. You'll always follow the team. <laughs> and he says, uh, 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 I'm, I'm optimistic about a future. We, we got a good young pitcher coming up. Yep. That was Gooden, and Gooden essentially took Seaver's spot it, on yeah, the roster, kind of forced did, the hand yeah. to do that. So, And that, that, that's, what, that's what I found so amazing about the pitching staff is you had a group, like Dwight Gooden was 21, you had Ron Darling in his mid twenties. You had um, Bobby Ojeda, who they traded for from the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. He had fallen out of favor with the front office and his teammates. And Cashin, to his credit, went and picked him up. And it, well, we'll talk about it later. It proved to be very important. Uh-huh. And then Sid Fernandez. Mm-hmm. And then you even had Rick Aguilera as your swing guy. I mm-hmm. mean, they had a, they were just loaded. Yeah, one of the best pitching staffs. I think yeah. that's what. And then you had a bullpen that featured basically two closers, McDowell and Orozco. They both won. Uh, save 20 that year. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were kind of the righty righty. Yeah. And I think uh, you probably might have looked at this more recently. I think they had seven pitchers who won in double figures. They did. Uh, that year. Yeah. At least six. But I, but I think uh, one of the bullpen guys did. And I think McDowell did. Yeah, I think he yeah. won 14. Yeah. But the uh, it, funny story about Jesse Orozco, I actually went to kindergarten and first grade with his son in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, And he pitched till he was almost 50. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. Yeah. Yeah. But a little, little trivia there. Orozco you know, uh, you know, was on the mound when the Mets won the 86 World Series. He'd been acquired in a trade for Jerry Kuzman. Oh, who wow. was on the mound when they won the '69 World Series? So I did not know that. Little, that's awesome. Little Met oddity there. <laughs> oh, that's a I had to prove I'm fact. a fan, guys. So. Oh, Dave, we <laughs> bring we, those up every single time. When I time. brought the subject up, and we were like, "We need, we need guests." I'm like, "Dave, right? I mean, come on." <laughs> nice for, to be here. Yeah, nice for, to be thought of that way for Met fandom. Come on now. <laughs> but uh, that that '85 team was kind of where you knew, like, 
this is going to be a problem for the NL East moving forward. And as you head into the spring of 86, they're picking up pieces like Ojeda is one, and then they get Tuffle to platoon at second base with uh, Wally Backman, mm-hmm. who, along with Dykstra, was kind of one of their um, fire starters in that lineup mm-hmm. at the very top. Yeah, um, when they were leading off in the in the beginning of that season, that's what Keith Hernandez was talking about. It was just like they were setting the tone for us going out and pretty much playing as hard as they pretty much could. What do you, Something he said, he was just like, it was like having two Pete Roses start off. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, hell yeah, man. That's what you need. Just absolute scrappers. <laughs> and their, their, their post-baseball uh, careers have been, not been Nothing good similar to, to Pete Rose, yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> They've been ups and downs. Yeah. Let's just say that. Strikes and gutters. But, I mean, a lot of gutters, but that's all right. But one of the big reasons that uh, Dykstra was able to play so often early yep. in that season was the fact that Mookie Wilson, who, like I said, we'll talk about later, he uh, got hurt in spring training in like a freak accident during practice. He got hit in the eye, and he was wearing these protective glasses, and the glass kind of shattered in his eye. Yeah, it was back before they had glasses that wouldn't shatter. Yeah. And they were saying it like the players were like crying out there because it was so horrific because you can pretty much see little pieces of glass in his eye. And they're like, oh, shit, is like he going to go blind? Like They had no idea what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was... And he was a clubhouse favorite, too. Yes. Even yeah. though he wasn't like a party guy, everybody loved him. Everybody he, loved and him, And he was yeah. a guy that was one of, uh, after the horrible uh, 80s, uh, 70s, was really one of the first, he and Hubie Brooks. Hubie Brooks, yeah. Who were guys that were like, oh, there's, there's some good players there. And Mookie became... You know, huge Met fan favorite. And Hubie Brooks is very important because they were able to send him before 1985 to Montreal for Gary Carter, Hall of Fame catcher, mm-hmm. who kind of really was that last veteran piece along with uh, Keith Hernandez mm-hmm. and um, also getting George Foster, who, yeah, <laughs> and uh, Ray Knight in 1984. Ray Knight. And, Ray Knight, yeah. and, and, and of course, the great Houston. completely forgotten member of that team was their shortstop, Rafael Santana, Santana, who was Slick. just your average... Made all the routine plays. They always they call him uh, they call him old get him by a step because he always threw to first casually, but yeah. just enough to get the guy by a step. <laughs> yeah, uh, two sixty hitter, nothing flashy, but uh, not much power. Part of that team, Oh, absolutely. He was their starting shortstop. And yeah. Then, of course, they would drop uh, Kevin Mitchell in it short now. And then. Oh, world, oh world be free. I want to talk about world be free right now. <laughs> I was going to say, I love the amount of positions he played throughout that year. Th- this is this is uh, this is why I love this team, because of the insane amount of depth that they had. And yeah, Kevin yeah. Mitchell was definitely a big part of that. Um, eventual NL MVP winner in San Francisco in 89. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And uh, if we talk about a postscript to this, his exit from New York was very unfortunate and for the wrong reasons, yeah. none of which were his fault. Yeah. But uh, Kevin Mitchell, they called him World Be Free because you could put him anywhere on the diamond and he'd play. He could play third base. He could play corner outfield. He even played some center, I think. Uh, you know, you could put him at second base. And he was a nice, valuable kind of platoon and, guy. And not a guy with a body you would think no. would be a versatile player. <laughs> you know, he's usually kind of a, a slender, quick guy. He was a bulky guy. And but he had, he, his, he had quick though. feet. I mean, God. He, and then that one catch with the Giants. Quick hands. Yeah, quick hands. Exactly. <laughs> he caught a ball barehanded. And it wasn't like it was just a lazy can of corn fly ball. This is a slice down the left field line. Mitchell doesn't position himself properly, and he catches it with his bare hand at Old Bush Stadium. It was crazy. Now, he was a Padre as well. Uh, Yeah. You're a Padre fan. What's your memories of him there? He um, was traded, obviously, after the season, and I'll talk about why he was later. But he only lasted half a season with San Diego, not because they didn't like him, but they traded him to the Giants in the uh, Dave Dravecki 
uh, deal, which sent actually Mark Davis. Hmm. And that was one of my first baseball memories was Mark Davis winning the Cy Young that year. My dad and I used to go to Jack Murphy, and it was very rare at that time for a closer to uh, win the Cy Young. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. was lights out. That was that was actually a good team. They finished, I think, second mm-hmm. that year. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Kevin, Kevin Mitchell and Davey Johnson was really a smart type of manager. He had a master's degree in math. And because he has this loaded roster, he could really do a lot of different things and move a lot of parts around to make a really competitive team. And when they went into spring training that year, he knew. He obviously knew. And Daryl Strawberry talks about how he said, guys, we're going to win it all this year. Like, they had that cockiness and that swagger we were talking about His earlier. famous line was, I expect us to dominate. Yeah, yeah. that was it. Not that just it. win, yeah. but yeah. win by a lot. Yeah. And he was a very, very early user of statistical analysis and com- yep. kind oh, of yeah. poked fun at early on for being a computer guy, but, uh, you know. Well, look at the game went. now. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's all it is. Yep. And uh, Cashin, I, I'm pretty uh, obviously Cashin probably knew him from when he played for the Orioles. Sure. Yeah. And he was the, actually the last out in the 69 yeah. World Series. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how all these little baseball webs get tied together, but that's how, I mean, he saw that he was going to be a great manager, and the only take back, and we'll get into this, is he kind of let them do whatever they wanted outside of the diamond, if that makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. the partying was getting out of control, and... But that, he's a former player, and that's the the whole code of it all. Right. Show up to... show up. Show up to the game. That's show up to the game. Yeah, that I was don't his give attitude. A shit. Was if they're pr- producing, I don't care what they're yes. doing. Yes, yeah. which yeah. was I feel like his only drawback. Yeah. But maybe not a drawback. Obviously, they might not have been as successful if he didn't. You know, if he put the reins on some of these guys. Because I felt like with the stories, you're like, man, how is the manager just kind of letting them <laughs> do whatever the hell they want? And then they're talking about him, and he's just like, well, he's about three, four vodkas deep at this point, so he really <laughs> isn't really caring, you know. And it's like, all right, fuck it, you know. <laughs> But uh, 86 starts out well. I mean, they come out of the gates firing. I mean, not they have a big series against St. Louis that month. Well, hold on, hold on. I want to talk about their 1-0. Yeah. They win their first game. And I want to I wanna ask you about this, Dave. They go out and they record an album. Yes, <laughs> yes. They... So they win one game and they pretty much go out and they're like, record this album like, we're the best in baseball, and what are you going to do? And that's pretty much how it sounds. So it's like the way that the clubhouse felt, because I can't even imagine them going out and recording this without being like, no, we are going to kick the shit out of everybody this year. And the Mets originally didn't back it. So like uh, they released this album, and the Mets were like, no, we're not going to sell it in Shea Stadium. Huh. Like, And throughout get, the year of them just dominating they're like okay we will sell this uh <laughs> met, what is it uh get mesmerized mes- mesmerized and let's go mets and that is like in the pantheon of the most camp value 80s sports raps or like music things ever well if you listen to it none of them can follow a beat so no. obviously <laughs> now, now are you talking about the music video the uh, let's go mets let's go, go met, one, yeah that uh-huh. has all these people that were big then and you're kind of trying to figure out who they are exactly yeah. yes yeah. yes yeah. i mean there's some like howard stern i think is in it but there's other people that's just Ed like Koch I, is in it i yeah, remember yeah, it's, it's just him. a weird collection of yeah uh, they're trying to get a bunch of new york people they're like remember yeah. this guy he's from new york <laughs> new york and it's like it's yeah well, they right. had they so had campy they, they had the teamwork to make the dream work yes yeah. yes there you go yes. there you go I've, I've watched it a couple of times, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but uh this was this is actually an interesting time in the mid 80s though for that city because after 
the seven, late 70s, early 80s where the Yankees were so dominant, the Mets kind of became New York's baseball team because they were that good. Mm-hmm. They had that kind of cockiness and swagger that you love seeing in a New York team. Mm-hmm. And the fans just embraced them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were just beloved in yeah. that city. They mm-hmm. really took storm, yeah. They yeah. took New York by storm. And I feel like a lot of those other East Coast kind of areas where baseball was hot and they didn't really have a team that they would be like, oh, I love this team like you would like a Met or a... Mm-hmm. Or a Red Sox, or you know what I mean, those areas. But the 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 album coming out was such a for me. It was almost like they were like in a drug haze, and they were just like, "We're the best." One game into the season, <laughs> we're the best, and then they proceeded to show there that they go. were. One hundred and seven more after that. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. That their regular season, they were just. Mm-hmm. The thing that I, I keep reiterating was they were partying and kicking the shit out of teams, not just they were fighting them too. So it was right, like right. they were the wild bunch. Yeah. When that first, I mean, to end that first month of April, not only are you getting a lead on the Cardinals, you win 11 in a row to end the month. Weren't they like 13 and, they, and three or yeah. something? Didn't and they, they sweep yeah. the Cardinals? Yeah, they swept them at Bush. And after that, Whitey Herzog basically said that's the best team in baseball, <laughs> yeah. the Cardinals manager. I mean, and it really carried over throughout the entire season because. Like I said before, you had a great starting staff between, you know, those guys. They won 76 games alone from their starting rotation, mm-hmm. their top four starters, and just completely kicked the crap out of every NL East team. Mm-hmm. I think the only team in the National League that they had a sub-500 record against that year were the Phillies who finished second, but also finished 21 and a half <laughs> games out of first place. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah that's, that's such a ridiculous statistic for the Mets but like we were saying in 90 or in 85 they had a great team that just missed out on on the playoffs and then they really put in this this uh I don't even know if he was a veteran at that point but this catcher that really put the the pieces together and I imagine made this pitching staff one of the best pitching staffs out there yeah having Gary Carter handle a young staff is always a good thing yeah yeah but, like I think in in '85 they won. I think they won '98 and finished behind the Cardinals. But yep. they had series against the Cardinals near the end of the '85 season. Were some of the most best games. Oh and most yeah, dramatic, intense games. Because they didn't uh, close them I'd out seen. until the very end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk about the intensity of baseball back then compared to now. Do you feel like the amphetamine <laughs> juices that were flowing through these guys? Because when they would dive into bases, they would do it wholeheartedly and now i feel like guys just kind of slide into bases uh, it's hard to well there's there there's certainly i i don't know i don't, I don't know that you're focused on drugs chris i mean <laughs> fine but i i i, I think that it's uh, really uh, money that you have you know because you used to say like uh, about an outfielder you go oh man he'll run through a wall for you yeah. you don't want that now no you don't so you don't want a, a 25 million dollar guy uh, losing a season you yeah. know, like that and things like that there were guys used to take risks uh, they're not going to do so much anymore you know much tighter on brush back pitches now and yeah you can't pitch inside collision anymore, rules yeah. sliding rules and things like that and it's just taken taking a lot of intensity out of the game and I think it's being replaced by a kind of more uh, showmanship these yeah, days. that's so, very yeah, yeah that's very yeah. true. Yeah. The uh, yeah, I don't I don't remember ever seeing a Mets game where Dykstra and Backman left with a clean uniform. No, <laughs> ever. Usually the first inning. Yeah, yes. usually the yeah. first inning. Yeah. But like, I wanted to, I wanted to get back to just like you had said about Davy Johnson. I expect you to dominate. So I went back and I looked at some stats um, on this season for this team. They were first in runs per game, 
second overall in runs allowed as far as fewest. They were first in on-base percentage, first in slugging, first in OPS, first in batting average, first in walks. Hmm. And it leads to the whole thing. You get on base, you're going to score runs, and that's exactly what they did. And mm -hmm. they had the pitching staff to just hold it down. Yeah. Well, they had such a balance with they had the Strawberry really and did. Carter with the power, Hernandez high average hitter. They had, if not like big base stealers, a lot of scrappy base runners and uh, smart base and, running. And, 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 you know, like we say, rock solid rotation. I thought it was a very well built team. I thought it was interesting. They were talking about Hernandez going into a slump in the summer of that year. And they were like, and then the rest of the guys picked it up because they were really a team that kind of came together in this year and you could see that like Hernandez and these other guys were the pieces that they needed because mm -hmm. you get you get a team of a bunch of good guys and they don't necessarily play for each other mm -hmm. and you could tell these Mets were playing for each other and really ready to win a World Series mm -hmm. I mean like if you well, watch I think those when games, you've uh, when you've when you've held a teammate's hair while he's puking uh, you <laughs> become there's a closeness closer. that develops. Closeness, yes, exactly. It's almost like a slumber party closeness <laughs> that they had. But it's crazy because, you know, you have Mookie coming back around midseason, and then you have Mitchell off the bench, you have Tuffle coming in to face lefties, then you have um, Danny Heap coming off the bench as a pinch hitter a lot of the times and mm -hmm. playing some corner outfield for you. I mean, it. there wasn't an easy out really in the lineup until you started to get to maybe like Santana and whoever's pitching, you know. Right, right. Yeah, and yeah. you... you there are so many different ways that they could beat you, and that's exactly what they did. And they had a lot of uh, interesting off-field things happen to them, though. <clears throat> yeah, I thought it was interesting because they had this atmosphere in the clubhouse where they could kind of talk shit with each other and it not be guys wouldn't get super offended. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that that's not the way it is for some clubhouses. Like, mm -hmm. One, the thing that stuck with me was Daryl Strawberry literally talking shit to Davey Johnson about starting Lenny Dykstra over Mookie. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, I can't even imagine a player doing that in a clubhouse that didn't have this like camaraderie, you know? Yeah. And yeah. The openness. It would cause dissension in other places. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I bet partying kind of had to, had something to do with that because they would literally get sloshed all the time, <laughs> but they would also fight other teams all the time. I feel like I keep they bringing that up. Four on-field brawls that year for yes. the Mets. Uh, the, the instance that I'm thinking of, well, two of them, one in Houston and the other one against the Reds. But uh, let's bring up the Houston one because I think it happened first. Well, I, actually, I was... You go, Dave. No, seriously. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, when we're getting to the playoffs, is that you know the Mets always had kind of this parallel course with Houston. Yeah, They were that expansion year. teams mm -hmm. at the same time. That's right, Colt 45s. Uh, the, the Colt 45s. Uh, and then when our president was murdered in the streets of Texas, they maybe we shouldn't name a team after a gun. Yep. And they were the Colts, and then they were the Astros. Um, the early teams, you know, they were expansion teams. They weren't very good, but they were much better than the Mets. They had yeah. young players. Joe Morgan, Morgan played for them. Jimmy Wynn, Rusty Staub. Yep. You know, and uh, and so the Mets stocked their team with people over the hill, exactly. Hodges, Duke Snyder, guys like that, who the fans loved, but they were not a, a good team. So the the Astros were always something the Mets were always kind of looking up up to, even though yep, you know, the Astros weren't that good. Uh, there was a very famous incident during the '69 season, if you remember about this, uh, before they really started rolling. That was the, the miracle year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where uh, it was a doubleheader in Houston, uh -huh. and a ball was hit in the outfield, and Cleon Jones was yeah. running it down. Cleon Jones was the star. He had three, oh, yeah. 340 that year. Uh, Davey, uh, Gil Hodges was the manager. Uh -huh. Very well respected. Oh, yeah. Considered a very, he was a Marine. Old Brooklyn Dodger. Guy. I mean, 
through and through. He, he walked out to left field, and the players on the infield were terrified. Why is he coming out here? And he walked out to left field, and you never see this, and he said to Cleon, are you okay? And Cleon says, oh, my legs. And Gil says, you come with me. And he pulled him out of the game. They walked all the way across the diamond. And many players on that team say that meant that changed oh, wow. things because we realized he wouldn't take less than 100% from anybody, even the star of the team. That's amazing. And it made a big difference. So that, was, that happened in Houston, and then, of course, the uh, infamous uh, four-player arrest yeah. In, in, yeah. In, in Houston. I, I just want to <laughs> say the name of this establishment, uh, Cooter's Executive Lounge. I mean, God bless you, Texas, <laughs> yes. for having these wonderful, <laughs> wonderful names. I thought it was interesting because Cooter's... Executive lounge uh, let athletes drink free, yeah, and that's why they would go. And then regular patrons would grow resentful, and a lot of shit would be started with, especially out of town athletes. Uh-huh. And so I thought it was interesting because it was uh, Tim Tuffle, Tuffle, Bob Ojeda, uh, Ron Darling, Darling who and... got thrown through a plate glass window, <laughs> yep. and uh, Ricky Rick Aguilera, Aguilera, and uh, they and... ran into some trouble. And uh, Daryl Strawberry was there in the beginning of the night, which I thought you look at Daryl coming from more of like a rough and tumble background. And he was just like, yeah, I went there and it was just like, this place isn't right. Like, I'm going to leave. And everyone was just like, nah, let's party. And then you see what happens. <laughs> I, like, I think they were celebrating Tuffle's, Tuffle's having son. a baby, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, he just yeah. had a son. And yeah. Tuffle wasn't like a partier that much. Very quiet guy. Just got out, yeah. of, out of control yeah. there. And uh that also stoked the Houston rivalry because that year Houston was the NL's West's best team. Mm-hmm. They had kind of had know, some great pitching control. over there. Oh, that's some very great pitching. But uh, a month before that, because this happened uh, July 20th, 1986. Uh, actually, no, no, no. It, it happened a little bit later. Um, on the 22nd, they're playing in Cincinnati mm-hmm. at Riverfront okay, Stadium. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, during the game, um, because, you know, Cincinnati's pretty much out of it this season, they're in that kind of. Uh, Pete Rose string of managerial seasons where they finish second in the NL West every year. And uh, Eric Davis, which we brought up before, uh, took a very hard slide into third base with Ray Knight, former Red, Pete Rose's <laughs> replacement, actually, for Cincinnati back in 79. He uh, takes exception to this, and the fracas breaks out. <laughs> it, it's, it's quite a... It's quite a incident because he slides in hard. They say something like, yeah, yeah. And then the Met player and him just start swinging <laughs> for the fences. It's not like fighting nowadays. They no. Sh- well, Knight was also a former Golden Glove. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He in, was, his, in his youth. So he could throw a punch. And, there you go. Yeah. yeah he, oh, and you could tell. Boxer, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what was it? Everyone was afraid because Kevin Mitchell, much like Strawberry, even though he didn't, he grew up in San Diego as opposed to LA, came from a very like gang related he wasn't in any gangs but i mean he came from a very rough background Uh and they were like mitchell's gonna kill somebody (laughs) like they were all like freaked out about that and he could he could fight with the best of them in in a in a couple years before mitchell got into a fight with strawberry yeah he he had no idea who he was and he he really kicked the shit out of him (laughs) and then somebody was like oh that's daryl strawberry and i was like ah shit i'm out of (laughs) here like i'm cut and they kept him around because he was such a great teammate but it, it just kept happening is that they would just, you know, poke people too much with their cockiness and arrogance like they got into a fight with the Dodgers. I mean, they throughout the league, they were despised and they didn't care mm-hmm. because they knew they were going to win. Like they were set course right to get. Yeah, to I would say I, I like, you know, guys, I, 
I'm only a baseball fan. I, I really don't have any knowledge of other sports. Uh-huh. But it, I'm sure that you follow other sports. There's some season where you're you have your team and it's the, it's the perfect combination. Yeah. Could, where you th- and this is how it was with the Mets that year. You felt like they were going to win every day. You mm-hmm. always felt like they would be that they would be coming through and and and, and they did most of the time. I was oh, going to say did. they won two out of three games. I mean that even a little bit more, and that's got to be yeah. so exciting for going through this era of them being bad because you're a fan no matter what, but then they just start dominating yeah. all the time. And the pitching is so good that you just, you love watching every single game. 108 wins. Yeah. That's just incredible. Yeah, after basically 30 years of suffering with the Mets, with the Mets having occasional high gonna, points, yeah. like the 86 season wins. was like, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I was like in hospice. It was like, all I'm, all I'm doing is feeling good. And just, <laughs> I'm fine. It's great. Yeah, it's great, great, great year. Please take me to the World Series. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, everybody. This is just a stock message at the end of every episode. We hope you enjoyed whatever athlete and or team that that episode was about. Just want to say give us a quick follow on all social media. We have a YouTube channel, the Sports Experience Podcast, and we're on Instagram, Tolo Dominic and myself, C. Quinn Comedy. So give us a follow all around. Um, We're always recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much.